Welcome to Do We Like Movies. I'm your host, Angel. Hey, his Tommy. <laughs> like a, you, you've been a real bitch to me since before we started recording, and you're gonna bring that into the podcast. <laughs> well, I want to do something different because I was listening to a podcast the other day, uh, another like kind of similar to our show, and I realized that I don't know if I did it on accident or what happened, but I started doing. Me and one of the hosts, or the host from this other show, we have a very similar, like, intro, so I wanted to change it up. So, I guess by being a bully to you. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so, this week, we are finally talking about Jurassic Park. And I think this one's been, like, several weeks in the making. So, I'm very excited to finally get to this one. Settle uh, down, it was two weeks in the making. <laughs> Well, yeah, but we we basically lined up our episode of this with, you know, Jurassic Park coming to Netflix, which is, I think it's good for us and it's good for the audience who likes to watch the movies that we're watching every week. What I love about it is that it looks like we did it on purpose, even though we really did it because I did not want to rent money. I didn't want to rent <laughs> Jurassic Park on Amazon Prime again. Yeah. Especially after last time, the last Jurassic Park movie we rented was Jurassic Park 3, and I hated that I had to rent that movie. But you love that movie. You basically <laughs> defended it for an hour. I did defend it because it's fantastic, and I hate you. <laughs> All right, and uh, I guess the best place to start here is uh, with our experiences with this movie. What's the first time you ever watched Jurassic Park? Oh, man. First time I ever watched Jurassic Park had to have been at home and it's one of those it's one of those movies that i don't remember when i watched it i just knew it was a staple in my household because it was one of those things like i remember being a kid and being like super enthralled by the dinosaurs as young as when i was like maybe three or four years old i might be having like a mandela effect thing going on here but i like distinctly remember watching the movie uh back in my parents first house when i was like little little uh this was back in oakland and for those that don't know i haven't lived in oakland for like 26 years (laughs) 25 years it's been a long time since my parents uh owned a home out there so it's like like i remember uh, seeing that movie and it was one of those movies we never owned but for some reason we always ended up renting it or somehow it was on tv a lot i remember it being on tvs and tnt a lot when i was a kid like this is when i was a little bit older maybe six seven eight years old um and yeah it was just it was i mean what wasn't there for little javi to love it had um you know great value uh indiana jones and alan grant it had dinosaurs it had quirky little kids what else could i want as a young child what about for you what was your experience with jurassic park jurassic park is one of the earliest movies i can ever remember watching kind of like when we talked about uh batman 89 how like that was just one of the earliest movie memories that i have this is exactly the same way i think i mentioned it too that you know the daycare that i was at there was older kids that went there and one of the movies that they wanted to see one summer was Jurassic Park. And I think this was the year, so this would have been in 94, so the year after it actually came out and it was brand new on video, uh, is the first time that I watched it. Now, my experience with this movie, despite the fact that 
I initially watched it on video. This is one of the few movies of this time period that I can actually say that I've seen in theaters as well. Because in 2013, I don't know if it was Steven Spielberg that went back and did it, but you know, like when 3D movies were like all the rage after Avatar for like the next five years. Like I feel like between 2009 and 2015, like everyone wanted to do stuff in 3D movies. And I feel like for some reason in the mid 2010s, it's like we didn't really care about 3D movies as much anymore. But uh, they went back. Things to worry about by that. Point. <laughs> but they went back and they decided to make a 3D version of Jurassic Park. And my, you know, then girlfriend, now wife, uh, went on a date to watch it. And uh, it was a really, you know, cool way to experience that movie in a movie theater uh, for the first time. So uh, it's definitely a movie that I've watched a ton, right, in my childhood. Uh, it's also a like I'm very familiar with the novel in that I've read the novel at least three times. I even have it on audiobook, And like, I think this is maybe the second time that I'm like listening to it on audiobook <laughs> right now. So I am, I guess I could say I'm a fan. I'm definitely a fan of this movie and a fan of this movie franchise. Yeah, guess I'm a fan nerd. No, I'm just <laughs> All right, I got I got to get some sort of animosity out at you because a lot of this show, this episode in particular, spoilers is going to be both of us gushing all over this movie, especially since I think we both have experience with the novel now. I I tried to take on the the good old mission of finishing the book in a week. Not going to lie, haven't picked it up since. Since I made that announcement last week, so uh, mission failed. But I do intend completely to finish this uh, this book. Uh, but even from where I'm at to um, you know where I'm at in the book, as in the Michael Crichton book, to com- to compare and contrast in the movie, there is so much that's different. Um, there's a yeah, there's just a lot of interesting ideas that both are deposited in the film and uh, in the novel that. I don't know. Like, I don't, it's hard to pick, at least based on where I'm at, it's hard to pick what I like more, you know? I don't know. Do you have a preference? I really prefer the novel in terms of what I think is my favorite version of this story, just because the novel's a lot darker than than the movie is. So I guess this is a good place to just kind of say that I really, while we're going through this movie, we're going to spoil this movie. And I think we're also going to spoil a lot of the beats from the novel that aren't in the movie right because this really is a situation where the book and the movie are kind of trying to tell different stories uh michael crichton's novel is really what it is is it's a cautionary tale against uh against like genetic you know modification which uh you know this was like before the time that like that like crispr came around which is like just the genetic modification like type that that you know like like the different types of genome modification and stuff and at this point you know it's something that's so regular and part of our life much like everything right like everything that's supposed to be kind of off limits and we're supposed to have a code of ethics about we basically don't (laughs) yeah we spit in god's face a long time ago (laughs) and this movie back in 89 was essentially a bit of a cautionary tale warning us not to go in that direction and i think because of that you know it i get the i get the the impression from watching the movie that steven spielberg was really interested in 
presenting the idea of dinosaurs on film and uh, having that be essentially like, you know, the characters in Jurassic Park are getting wowed by seeing dinosaurs for the first time in 65 million years. And the people who were watching the movie in 93 were kind of having a similar experience in that we were seeing CGI and what digital technology could do in the movie industry for the first time. Let me just say that the special effects to Jurassic Park compared to Tammy and the T-Rex are <laughs> fucking oh. light year apart, y'all. <laughs> Why? Why do we have to reference that wretched piece of shit? <laughs> because that's literally the only reason we decided to do Jurassic Park. <laughs> was because our friend Jose was like, review Tammy and the T-Rex. And I'm like, well, if we got to watch that hot piece of garbage, I'm at least going to couple it with something good. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I mean, this is it. This was the first time that we really saw CGI in a movie. And now it's just something that you know, we're seeing everywhere. And it's not the first time that CGI happened. Like, you know, like Terminator 2 probably did about as much as you can do with CGI uh, using the T-1000. So, you know, computer animation existed, you know, and Pixar was around around this time too. They just hadn't really linked up with Disney and started making these like big blockbuster movies yet. So these things existed and they were kind of around, but this was really the first time that the right group of people got together and uh, created something special out of it that really changed the way films are made. Um, and it's probably the last great Steven Spielberg movie. Uh, this, and funny enough, this, this year he was busy. Like he did Schindler's List the exact same year that he was doing Jurassic Park. I mean, wasn't and, he green, greenlit for Schindler's List only if he did Jurassic Park first? Like, that's one of the things I was reading about. Well, that makes sense because, yeah, my understanding was that he was cutting and editing Jurassic Park while he was filming Schindler's List. So I can't imagine, like, you know, you're shooting this, like, really, like... You know what? I, I think that's probably exactly why the tone of Jurassic Park, the movie, is so different than the novel. You know, just in general, like Steven Spielberg was already dealing with material that was very difficult to get through and serious. And, you know, I can't imagine him, you know, doing two movies at once <laughs> that are dealing with some grim subject matter. So I, maybe that's the reason why, you know, the tone of this movie is different. But we can, I'll mention more about, you know, my thoughts on the novel and scenes in the novel as we're getting through this movie. Yeah, uh, how familiar are you with, like, the backstory with how Jurassic Park got made? I've seen the documentary. They had a documentary uh, narrated by James Earl Jones <laughs> on one. I, I don't remember which release of this was. It was, but it was, like, a really good, nice, long documentary where they went through all of this. Mm -hmm. And essentially, this movie at one point was supposed to be before they even landed at CGI, they had a guy um, who they were working with. I think his name was Phil Tippett, who was a stop motion animator. Mm -hmm. And he, I think his studio, I think his studio or people associated with him famously did uh, the Ed 209 from RoboCop. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the idea originally when this movie was in production was that the dinosaurs were going to be created using this like stop motion. And essentially what happened was I think at some point 
you know, Steven Spielberg wasn't happy with, you know, what the effects look like. And he went over to, I guess these, they're called industrial light and magic, which yeah. is like the Lucas. That's the mm-hmm. Lucas people, right? They've done all the like, you know, re redoing of the, um, of the, the star Wars, you know, movies and the prequels and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they, they also did the uh, T-1000 from Terminator. So uh, they, you know, were just like, okay, well, we'll take a crack at it. And once Steven Spielberg and Phil Tippett saw what they were able to render with 3D animation, you know, with digital 3D animation, uh, they knew it was going to be something completely different. And funny enough, even though the guy was essentially kind of booted off the project for the most part, uh, Phil Tippett, because of the animation change, he actually ended up working very closely with the people at Industrial Light Magic. And I think to the point to where he actually like worked with them on other projects afterwards. Shout out to uh, ILM, which is based on out in Marin and has worked on awesome projects like Back to the Future, a lot of the early Star Trek movies, Ghostbusters 2. And which one was the one that really... Oh, yeah, Harry Potter in the good old Harry Potter series. I know they did a lot of the special effects. Um, And and it's funny we mentioned that, the fact that it's so Bay Area-centric. But even the novel itself, like a lot of the companies that uh, were working with InGen and the genetics companies, mm -hmm. they're all based in the Silicon Valley now, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they even name-dropped Genentech by, by name in the novel, which, you know people here you know like i i you know people in the bay area like genentech has been well well known for decades and decades it's one of the you know more massive companies that exist in this area oh dude genentech's awesome from what i hear they're a great company to work for they're like they're like one of those it's like google but for medicine yeah yeah i think funny enough i think we actually know people and I'm not gonna expose who they are on the podcast, but I think you and I actually know people that that either work at or worked at Genentech at one point. Yeah, a friend was telling me about it. They're like, "Oh, yeah, we had like Pitbull show up to for like a company event." I was like, "What the <laughs> fuck?" I'm like, "Genentech sells titties. Like, I want to go." Yeah, and, and essentially, you know, that's in in Gen is is located in the Bay Area in the book, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll get into it because. Essentially what happens, the reason why they make it such a point to set everything in San Francisco or in the Bay Area is because InGen is considered a very technologically advanced company. Um, And part of it was in the novel, I guess, their idea was that, you know, it's hard to pay a bunch of people a lot of money to live in, you know, Central America or Costa Rica, like different parts of the country and have them, you know, work at this amusement park that's on an island somewhere, right? So the original intent behind Jurassic Park was not only to bring in, you know, dinosaurs so that people can see them, but the idea was to have so much of it be done through automation that you needed as minimal staff as possible. Wait, you're talking about in reference to the novel, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. And then that's how they introduced Nedry and his whole arc as a character. So, you know, yeah. as, an IT, as an IT person, I would probably say that Jurassic Park is a cautionary tale on what happens when you underpay your IT department. 
Yes. <laughs> yes, that's the take-home message. Not creating slights against our Lord and Savior, God. <laughs> All right. Want to kill us. I feel like we've already like just floated around this long enough, so let's go ahead and just jump into the movie, shall we? Yeah, uh, freaking, this movie opens up with a stormy night in Costa Rica. And we get introduced to big game hunter Muldoon. He's the guy that's kind of in charge of the dinosaurs. I guess um, he's he's also kind of like leading this team as they're loading uh, dinosaurs into the park. Uh, We see an accident. We see a... uh, Yeah, we see the... Who was it that got attacked? Some one of the randos, right? <laughs> so um, we see the, immediately uh, how vicious these dinosaurs get to be after a mistake, where they weren't able to close the door fast enough, and the dinosaur ends up killing one of the uh, one of the assistants, one of the handlers. And yeah, that pretty it's much just, it's just a worker for just don't don't think about it too hard <laughs> sorry well no i was I, it was mostly because i was trying to gather my next thought because i didn't realize that was going to be the catalyst of the rest of the story and the reason why i or what i mean by that is the fact that the whole reason grant uh ian malcolm alan grant and ellie sadler as well as uh Gennaro, the the lawyer go to the island is because of the lawsuit that the family of the worker that was killed filed uh, against John Hammond in Jurassic Park. Right. Which is, it's a good, it's kind of like, uh, you know, shortcut screenwriting, right? It it makes it very quick, clean, and easy. Because in the novel, like this, this scene is kind of a reference to something in the novel. Because in the beginning of the book, uh, it actually starts in Costa Rica. And, uh, you know, you're following a doctor or nurse that works in one of the hospitals, like, you know, right near the coast. And as she's working in the hospital one night, a helicopter lands uh, near the hospital. It's a smaller hospital, right? Not one of the bigger ones in the city, but a helicopter lands there. And it's just a bunch of like, you know, construction looking workers that are taking out a young man who, you know, essentially they said it was like a piece of machinery, like almost like dismembered him mm-hmm. and uh it's just the <clears throat> it's the like doctor kind of you know it's them kind of describing that the doctor like looked at his injuries and that it looked more like it was like if it, he was actually like you know attacked by an Ball. animal yeah, yeah it, it, it had all the characteristics of a mauling uh they were talking about how his wounds actually stank because whatever was biting him just had like the stench of rotten of like you know rotted flesh and stuff like that and um mm. And in That's the book, so <laughs> yeah, so, so my, my always thought anytime I watch this movie is that the guy in the beginning of this movie is the guy who eventually gets taken to, to that hospital, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the other thing that's different in the novel is that dinosaurs are already on the mainland when that book starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this like same hospital portion of it, there is a scene where, you know, they taught where they show like, you know, a, uh, you know, like a nursery with kids that are like, that are babies. Yeah. Babies that are being eaten by these, uh, you know, compies or raptors or whatever. Right. I think it was the raptors that were they, because they are um, nocturnal. I don't know if they were attacking at night, 
But um, the people of Costa Rica in the little village, like, attributed them to, like, El Cucuy or some other, like, monster. Like, when it was actually raptors that were going into the kids. Yeah, I wanted to get this one right. And because I just listened to the audiobook, they called them upias. And I guess upias were, like, these, like, ghosts that, or, or, like, you know, ghouls that would come and steal kids in the night. So (laughs) You see, our Costa Rican listeners, we totally value your guys' culture. (laughs) So um, after the death of this uh, dinosaur handler, uh, essentially the investors are want to want to rule out any sort of like wrongdoing. They don't want to lose money, so what they do is that they send uh, Donald Gennaro, the the kind of sleazy lawyer dude, and he is going to work with John Hammond. Woo, sorry about that. He is going to work with John Hammond and try to. Uh, prove that the that the uh, park is safe enough for uh, uh, people to come and actually participate, right? So in order to do so, they uh, go out and get this team of super nerds that are going to come over and they're going to evaluate the park for them. And that includes Alan Grant, paleon... No, is he a paleontologist? Archaeologist? He's a, he's a paleontologist. Oh, fucking... I'm not... I'm in public health, okay? I don't know all the other science. What the fuck do you want? I'm actually giving you an answer to your fucking question. Yeah, but you said it with like a weird fucking like attitude. I don't need your two, dude. Suck my dick. And then they end up, uh, so who is, he's played by Sam Neill. And then they hire um, Ellie Sadler, who is his girlfriend slash expert a, in paleo, paleobotany. Is she's a paleobotanist, yes. That sounds so made up. And then finally they get mathematician Ian Malcolm, uh, who's played by uh why am I blanking on Jeff Goldblum's <laughs> name? <laughs> yeah, oh dude. yeah, and also Ellie Sattler's played by Laura Dern and Ian Malcolm's played by uh Jeff Goldblum. It's funny, yeah, like all these actors are are people that I've seen in stuff, but it feels like Jurassic Park is like it's their biggest contribution to pop culture. Uh, Sam Neill was in, uh, like, I primarily knew him from, <laughs> it's going to sound stupid, but it was one of the sequels to The Omen, where he plays the adult version of Damien. It's uh, funny that I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> he's also in um, Event Horizon, uh, which is a space horror movie. Oh, I can't wait till we review Event Horizon on the show, <laughs> inevitably. <laughs> And he was also in, uh, fuck, what is that other movie? Uh, in the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter, which he is so good at playing a fucking psychopath in that movie. <laughs> I remember that one. Holy crap. I've seen a lot more Sam Neill movies than I thought I did. Yeah, and it's funny because Sam Neill in this movie, he's kind of like, you know, he, he's, he's essentially casted as like the, you know, the hero of the story who's kind of like, you know, this movie was made in the 80s, like, he would be the guy who, like, Stallone or Schwarzenegger are playing, <laughs> who's, mm-hmm. gonna, who's gonna save everyone, and yet it's, like, Sam Neill, who just looks like a crazy man instead. <laughs> One it's, like if you, it's like if you got, like, Jack Nicholson to be the hero in this movie, <laughs> kind of. Oh, yeah, that'd be rad! <laughs> Wanna hear something interesting? Sure. Originally, uh, William Hurt was offered the role for Alan Grant, and Harrison Ford was offered the role. And it, seems, it feels like a Harrison Ford part, but I can imagine why Harrison Ford didn't want to do it. <laughs> and then, yeah, because he's just bitter about everything and doesn't want to do anything, <laughs> anything fun anymore. 
And then the other thing that tripped me up was Jim Carrey originally auditioned for the role of Ian Malcolm. So imagine in a world where we could have had Harrison Ford and as uh, as Alan Grant and Jim Carrey as uh, Ian Malcolm. Well, like that, that makes sense. I mean, like it's, Jeff Goldblum, it, he like he feels like he's riffing the entire time in this movie and anytime i see a jim carrey movie from the 90s like that's what it feels like it just feels like it's him riffing and like you wonder if he's even using a script at all <laughs> in life you wonder if he even has a plan in <laughs> and then laura dern i know her primarily well outside of jurassic park i know her primarily from uh, blue velvet which she was in that movie as well and she's been in a ton of other stuff that i've seen and most i think the other movie that we reviewed her in on this podcast was when we did the last jedi that's right she wasn't the last jedi i thought mm-hmm. you were gonna say jurassic park 3 oh no she wasn't that too yeah never mind <laughs> this is our third time actually reviewing her in something wow laura dern <laughs> just gets her way around on our show without us noticing <laughs> <laughs> well so but, does sam jackson who's also in this movie i think this is our also our third sam jackson movie because he was in the star wars prequels he was in uh the spider-man the far from home movie and now we're in jurassic park Oh man, we're like covering like all these like lesser known <laughs> Sam Jackson parts. We should just turn this into a Sam Jackson podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, you know, I, these are the people who are going to be brought onto this island uh, to, I guess, give their sign, like to sign off on it, <laughs> and to you know let them know that it's ready for people to start visiting it. Mm-hmm. And uh, these characters, you know, they get a, they get to this island under different circumstances in the book. In the book, Gennaro is actually a completely different character. Like, he feels like, he actually feels like an equal to Alan Grant in terms of, like, being a guy who could, like, fight off a dinosaur with his, <laughs> with his like, bare hands. But, like, for real, like, like it, based on you how You were they, so about <laughs> to say bare hands. Based on how they write him in the novel, like, I feel like he... Uh, what's it called you know uh, Alan Grant and Robert Muldoon could all be like a like a super trio <laughs> that could like murder all the dinosaurs together they just, they just rip their shirts off and they're all oily and muscly and they're like let's go <laughs> but in the book the reason why he's going to the island is because you know they've already heard that these dinosaurs are getting off the island and one of the comp and like a group of compies end up attacking a girl and her family who are vacationing in Costa Rica, uh, you know, and it's discovered that, you know, that what they've seen is a dinosaur. Alan Grant, Alan Grant and uh, Ian Malcolm, like were essentially consultants uh, with Jurassic Park from the beginning. Uh, They just weren't aware of what, of what they were being asked, but to the point where I guess Gennaro or like different people associated with InGen would like randomly call Alan Grant in the middle of the night, asking them weird questions, like what particular breeds of dinosaurs would eat (laughs) and how much. (laughs) And it's just, it's like the one thing that doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, yeah, you wouldn't catch on to what they're going to bring you, you know, on board to. And, <laughs> and whereas like the book, it, it takes so long to get to the island in the book. And in the movie, we get there instantly, right? Uh, we, we see this, like, you know, dig that they're doing in, in Montana where uh, Grant and Sadler, like, find, you know, where they're, they're unearthing the bones of a raptor. 
so this is the first time that we're going to see a Velociraptor. And I think we mentioned this on our Jurassic Park 3 podcast, but this is not what Jurassic, this is not what Velociraptors look like in real life. They are not this big. They are actually like a fraction of the size that the dinosaurs in this movie are. It's actually funny that the kid that uh, Alan Grant goes on to uh, like torture in this scene, (laughs) like that kid's actually super right compared to what our understanding of dinosaurs is now is that velociraptors aren't much bigger. They're like between the sizes of turkeys and chickens. Like they're not that big. And something I also didn't realize that this movie did way back in 93, it really hammers home the point that uh, a lot of dinosaurs are closer in uh, being related to birds than they are to reptiles, Mm -hmm. Um, which I honestly thought was something a lot more, a lot more uh, recent. I thought that was a, a finding that people were coming to accept like closer to now. I didn't realize people were making that connection way back in like the early nineties, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like you were saying, the, these dinosaurs are not nearly as what we picture them. And I think uh, the Jurassic park is a big uh, contributor to like our cultural zeitgeist as to what we believe dinosaurs are to look like, you know? Right. Because we talked about this in Jurassic park three, but raptors are not as intelligent as they're portrayed in this. They're not like these, like, <laughs> in Jurassic Park 3, they even go fucking ridiculous with it, where they talk about how raptors were going to be the dominant species on Earth. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to get, like, you're not going to get clever girl if you add <laughs> raptors started attacking us. Yeah. You would be fine, average American of average intelligence. <laughs> yeah it's 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 really bizarre i don't understand i don't understand why it's like this but it is i guess so, just so yeah right off the bat while we're in montana we get uh you know while when um i was about to call her <laughs> when ellie and alan uh they find this dig like i don't know if they're, it's a bunch of people visiting or if it's like actual workers apparently it's take your kid to the fucking archaeological dig site day <laughs> But for some reason, among all these adults, as they're uh, as they're finding pictures of um, of the fossils within the earth, this kid um, comes up and he starts talking mad shit about velociraptors <laughs> and how they're they're probably not really even that scary if they were real. To which Ellen Grant responds by, in you know, not so many words, saying that a velociraptor would rip him open and eat him while he's still alive. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, of course, the scene is kind of played for laughs, and that's the that's essentially like uh, Grant's arc for the rest of, this, of the film is um, he has this weird. Uh, uneasiness around children like he doesn't seem like a guy that uh, right off the bat he's he doesn't want to be like a fatherly figure you know he 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 says on several occasions that he doesn't want kids he doesn't see the point in having kids for him and uh you know he would be better off without him yeah and i hate to be i'm sorry i'm gonna be the but the book guy this whole a podcast episode but in the book he you know he is not uh he doesn't really have this thing where, you know, where he doesn't want to be around kids and stuff like that. <laughs> and in fact, like he 
is not even in a romantic relationship with Ellie Sattler. Ellie Sattler is uh, engaged to marry someone else, and they just happen to be people that have worked together for a very long time. And, you know, they, they, they have much more of a, um, you know, like more of an apprentice relationship or like, you know, it's like a mentor and apprentice, like than anything like that. Uh, but this is kind of, again, it, it, I guess it's shorthand to try to make, <laughs> to try to give him some sort of arc or whatever, um, which is okay, whatever. It's fine. Uh, it it does, works in the context of this film. It does. But you know, what's really funny. I've never really questioned until now what the hell that kid is doing at this dig site. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, there's no reason for him to be there. Because specifically like in the book, they talk about how treacherous like this desert in Montana is that they're at. Like, to the point where they talk about how they were only able to actually stay in besides the camper that they have, they're only able to stay in teepees because every single other size of tent that they were using was getting blown away by like the crazy, the crazy winds and everything. So <laughs> I don't, it's yeah, it just, it's so weird to me. Now all of a sudden it's take your kid to the fucking work day and <laughs> you have this little shit just there. Like what's a kid going to contribute to one of these digs? Actually, no, I'm lying. In The Exorcist, there was a kid that totally contributed to the day. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they get uh, approached by John Hammond, uh, who is essentially Howard Hughes meets Walt Disney. He's like this entertainment magnate. magnate. Yeah, and- he's a guy who essentially had uh, different, I guess, like, at least in the novel, he's presented as a guy who's had different theme parks, most notably, I guess, one in Kenya, mm-hmm. and uh, that he's working on this next giant project, you know. Uh, whereas, like, in the novel, <laughs> he is presented as an absolute, you know, unapologetic <laughs> capitalist who cares <laughs> not about anyone. And, like, in this movie, he is really, like, you know, he's played by Richard Attenborough, he is a very, you know, nice, affectionate old man who, you know, just there's something about him that's so disarming because he does just look like because Richard Attenborough is like literally Santa Claus. <laughs> you know, I was about like, to say that he looks like <laughs> dinosaur Santa. <laughs> so, so it's just it's he's very like you know likable, and there are like you know redeemable characteristics about him in this in this movie so because if i remember correctly in the book like freaking john hammond is like andrew carnegie or rockefeller and he's just like (laughs) he's just this guy that's like old money but like he's been uh investing in science and stuff and he's just like like he just has like this weird disdain for people that try to take away from what his what his ultimate goal is, right? Or what his dream is, which I guess in this case would be to make dinosaurs. (laughs) To make dinosaurs and to make money. Uh, There's the, you will meet later the, you know, uh, there's another character that you'll meet later in in the movie that has a much larger backstory in the book. And it's very clear that like John Hammond will really go up to people. He would go up to geneticists and say, you know, you could either try to work in the university system, which, you know, the book talks about how, in the eight, you know, early 1900s, all great like scientific breakthroughs were done by people who worked in universities, uh, by people who like you know there, there was 
it was kind of like an old world like fraternity of science that you know that that went through you know government sponsored agencies and stuff like that and that's where a lot of the great discoveries would be whereas like in the later part of the 20th century a lot of it shifted more and even now right like they talked about not just genetics but like medicine and mm-hmm. like all these other things everything shifts to for profit everything so, is in the private sector i mean yeah so so whereas like research Musk. yeah yeah so whereas research and projects in the older university system requires you know meeting with a bunch of different boards and chairs uh before you can like get something signed off on by all the right people you know, John Hammond essentially like brings people on board by saying, I'll just give you whatever you want and I'll just mm. give you a ton of money and then you can go ahead and do <laughs> Do you want ethics or do you want money, see? <laughs> but yeah, that's actually, now I think about it, he's like Walt Disney meets Elon Musk. He's just this venture capitalist that also views the world with a weird childlike sense of wonder, but he wants to exploit that wonder for money. <laughs> and because, you know, we're doing, we're reviewing this movie and not the novel. Uh, I, you know, in this, in this book, like he, he, I mean, in this movie, he wants to bring them, you know, he wants to essentially get Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler to be on his side and kind of, you know, you be the good word to push back against Gennaro uh, mm-hmm. and the and all them stuffy suits. Yeah, I mean, sure, Gennaro works for 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 Hammond, but yes, it's they they want to make sure that that this is stable, a stable project. Mm-hmm. So we find out that John Hammond has been the benefactor of Alan Grant's uh, digs. And he's been the one uh, supplying essentially the money. And I can say as someone that has worked in a uh, nonprofit where you, uh, where you can have like your funder drop in at any point. Yeah. You, you got to put on the whole dog and pony show whenever they come around. Oh yeah, for sure. So uh, we find out that, uh, you know, that's where he invites them to come to the Island. They immediately accept and he flies them out uh, and that's where we get introduced to Ian Malcolm, uh, who is a mathematician. I think I've already said that like four times. Yeah. But he specifies specifically in chaos theory, which I'm not 100% sure what chaos theory is. It's just the likelihood. My understanding was always that it was just the likelihood of, of, of the, the universe uh, preferring disorder over order and how it's uh, it, that's just the natural state of the universe and now it can be proven mathematically yeah in, in the book like i can tell that this is that this is michael Crichton's favorite character <laughs> because all he does is just go on long like tangents in the novel mm-hmm. um but essentially everything about himself like why he dresses the way he does mm-hmm. why he talks the way he does like I'm like, oh my god, Michael Crichton loves this guy. <laughs> yeah, and in the book, he's really obnoxious, but in the movie, because he is played by uh, by Jeff Goldblum, like he is a lot more charismatic and charming. Mm-hmm. And this, he, it kind of, not 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 in every way, but it's not too dissimilar from the character that Jeff Goldblum plays in The Fly, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this it, it's this like scientist where it's like. He, he knows that what he's doing is going to change the world or, you know, he knows that, you know, that, that the science that he's involved in is important, but, but Jeff Goldblum is able to sell it in, in, you know, with his charm, 
so that it ends up being a character that you like instead of being someone that you're completely turned off by. <laughs> and that's what the film does a good job. And I think that's part of um, Steven Spielberg's gift is that he's, he's able to make very gritty, realistic films, but also very wholesome uh, films that have that kind of like childlike sense of wonder. While still being grounded in realism, you know. Well, and and they keep they they essentially just keep the only thing you really need from Ian Malcolm, and that's the fact that he's going to set up like the chaos theory, right? Um, mm-hmm. And what chaos theory is, like you had you had already mentioned it, is that it is like a combination of different things that are coming to destroy everything. And the basically what goes wrong in Jurassic Park is several things. Uh, mm-hmm. Is the idea that they're trying to control the population of this island? It is the fact that they are trying to change, you know, essentially make new animals. Like these are not existing dinosaurs. And we talked about it in Jurassic Park 3. We had, we, in Jurassic Park 3, when we reviewed it, we talked about the conversation that Henry Wu has with John Hammond in, in the book of mm. Jurassic Park. And because it came back in the lost world, essentially, which is, this isn't what dinosaurs actually look like. This is more like if you give an artist, like, you know, tell him, draw me a dinosaur they're not going to draw something that's a hundred percent accurate. They're just going to give you their best estimate of what it would look like. Mm-hmm. Like to the point to, you know, the way we drew dinosaurs, like when Jurassic Park came out, a lot of them looked a lot more lizard like, and you know, they looked more like, you know, giant snakes. Like they, these, even the dinosaurs, this one, they have like dry skin and all that kind of stuff. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, later on, now that you're seeing more, you know, books being published and pictures of dinosaurs in books, you see that a lot more of them have feathers and quills. You see that a, that a T-Rex does have like feathers on his head, even if the rest of his body is not proven to have like feathers all over. And just the, the overall anatomy is, is so similar to birds that we just know that it's what they eventually like evolved into. But yeah, of course, these are the, the idea behind that is that it's it's you were creating something brand new and you have no idea what what the uh, consequences are of creating something like that. You don't know what the consequences are of of taking away, you know, like their ability to be male and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. you're filling in their their gene, you know, their gene sequences with like other animals <laughs> mm-hmm. so, gotta love the foreshadowing in the helicopter ride huh when uh when alan grant uh when they're like descending and ready to land alan grant has to put on a seatbelt, but he only has two female pieces so he just like ties it together holy shit i've never i've never like thought about it that way <laughs> really you never noticed that no, I mean, I've always noticed the scene, but I always thought it was just one of those goofy, like, character moments. But that actually, I like that. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is very much, it absolutely, that is absolutely like a, like, just foreshadowing of what this movie is about. <laughs> oh, totally, because, like, the next thing that, or was it later on in the, in when they're going to the visitor center, I, Ian Malcolm says it himself, uh, life always uh, finds a way. <laughs> yeah (laughs) but yeah like you were saying so we get this scene so so they get they get to jurassic park uh and on their way to the visitor center they actually drive past a clearing and they're able to see just the in an open field they're able to see the brachiosaurs and they're able to see like a bunch of a bunch of the dinosaurs actually over a bunch of the herbivores over down by uh like a watering hole which which let me just say because 
I, so I own all the movies, and that's what I watched when we watched Jurassic Park 3. All of them except Fallen Kingdom. I just That's the only one I don't own yet. Mm-hmm. But I own all the movies in this series. And uh, I didn't realize this until very recently that the transfer that I have on, on my Apple account is a 4K transfer of this movie. Mm-hmm. And it looks fucking awesome in 4K. Like, just especially, imagine. like, these scenes. Like, these scenes of, like, the cgi shots of the animals and later on like with the t-rex and stuff like that it is really cool and i recommend uh, to anyone if you're able to get yourself a 4k copy of this movie to be able to watch it high recommend because it just it, it looks so good it, and it's probably the best viewing experience that i've had with it since i saw that 3d movie seven years ago <laughs> It's such a beautiful shot, right? Like, we get the wide... Like, yeah, it's very clearly CGI now, but even by now standards, it holds up really well. But you got the John Williams score. You have, like, the the theme song reaching the crescendo as you get the wide shot of the brachiosaurs on the water and the what i don't even know what to call what to call the other ones <laughs> well the, look at uh, here's a, here's a re- whatever sore <laughs> here's a here's a reference to like a, to a movie that you probably didn't think we were going to reference at all in this podcast Batman. but no the cinematography <laughs> of this movie is done by a guy named Dean Cundy who besides doing Back to the Future, so he's worked in the Spielberg camp before, mm-hmm. but he got his start with John Carpenter in Halloween. <laughs> and if you see, like, it just, if you watch, like, any of the, if you watch, you know, Back to the Future or if you watch Jurassic Park, just the way that everything is shot in these, like, long, wide shots and stuff like that, if you mm. go back and watch Halloween again, you appreciate the artistry of it a lot more because this guy definitely knew what he was doing from a very young age and Mm -hmm. all of his all of the movies that he does cinematography for have this massive like just like visual scope to them to where you Mm -hmm. feel like you're seeing stuff in almost a panoramic view in some ways and funny enough before he even worked with john carpenter he mentions on a halloween documentary that he got his start in adult movies You know, that's actually really common from like the more we do this show, the more I realize, wow, a lot of like these background and like behind the scene folks, like these more technical positions, a lot of them get their start in porn. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I guess, I mean, hey, your uh, experience is experience, regardless of what, you know, whatever content you're making. This podcast will never dog the porn industry. (laughs) Do we like porn? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So finally, our, you know, group of scientists, I was going to so call them science nerds, but our group (laughs) of scientists make it to the visitor center. And here is pretty much the down and dirty. Uh, they get they get over the explanation of the science and how everything works right away. We get this um, really this short video by John Hammond where he explains like you know they have Mr. DNA there. Mr. DNA explains that they're extracting dino DNA from mosquitoes that were caught in amber uh, from prehistoric times. Yeah, which I'm pretty sure at this point the science has proven that we cannot actually do this. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just playing. <laughs> You're more likely of creating a brand new like genetic sequence <laughs> and creating I, like brand like... new monstrous animals <laughs> than you are of like trying to recreate a dinosaur. <laughs> 
Please kill me, father. <laughs> but anyway, what I really like about this scene is that it really encapsulates uh, what Michael Crichton likes to do. Like, I also started Andromeda Strain, and, you know, I've read half of Jurassic Park. The big thing Crichton loves to do is he likes to make his stories feel like they're grounded in realism. He likes, he likes his heroes to have this weird pulp hero feel to them, and he likes his science to be real. <laughs> and so they're able to, you know, with the short film, they're able, they, don't get, they don't spend too much time into it. They just ground it in as realistic as possible, and you as an audience member can just kind of accept it. And you're just like, oh, yeah, I guess, like, for this, this, this movie is establishing its rules, it makes sense, and I can just move forward with it, right? And then uh, later on, or, you know, moving forward, we get to see that cool scene where they go into the, uh, not the hatchery, but they see, like, they see where the embryos are being stored and how the scientists are essentially creating life at this point and how they are, uh, they're birthing the, 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 the raptors, uh, mm -hmm. the velociraptors in the lab, right? And like you said, this is where they uh, bring up some really important information one one of the safety precautions is that every dinosaur is supposed to be female is bred to be female and uh two that they're supplementing using uh frog dna because it's close enough to reptile uh, i don't know they just uh, they just picked frog i'm assuming <laughs> that whole sa the the east african frog thing was true where where alan grant says that there's certain species of frog that if there is no uh, males in the population will uh spontaneously like grow male genitalia i don't know if that's true but um I, I mean i'll go along with it for the movie <laughs> yeah i'm no scientist i just play one on this podcast <laughs> I ain't no science, bitch, because I believe in our <laughs> Lord Jesus. I believe the world is only 4,000 years old. <laughs> so, you know, it's at this point that they get, um, oh, no, they end up going to, they end up going to lunch where uh, they have this discussion about the ethics around genetic engineering and cloning, right? Um, our heroes also get to meet Muldoon at the raptor enclosure where Muldoon is kind of like, imagine the game warden. He's the guy in charge of security. He keeps the, um, he keeps the dinos in line. I vaguely remember him being a lot more like menacing and borderline evil when I was a kid. But after watching it, I actually watched it today, this morning. I was like, whoa, Muldoon is actually like way more likable than I remember. Like, like you were saying, like him, he, it feels like he can just as much be like the main character. That, <laughs> it's that strange it, to me that you remember him that way. <laughs> yeah. Like I had a moment that where you recreate movies in your head. Like I had that moment where I could have sworn he was like a dick. <laughs> Maybe I always assumed as a kid that he got the dino handler killed. Mm -hmm. But as I learned, he's the one that's like fighting to try to get the dude out of the, out of the you know, out of the door and save his life. But yeah, like he totally gives off the vibe that he can be just as much of a hero as, you know, Alan Grant is in this film. Yeah. Well, and also like that, that pairing that kind of happens between he and Ellie Sattler later in the movie actually really works for me. <laughs> oh, 
not romantic you want, you theory. I mean, together, eh? No, it, as the kids <laughs> say. no, literally, just I feel like they are probably like a really good like buddy cop on like team. <laughs> uh, we also get introduced to Lex and Tim, who are um, who are. Why am I forgetting John Hammond's name? <laughs> who are John Hammond's uh, grandkids, right? And uh, we find out off the right off the bat, Tim is a huge dinosaur nerd. He loves dinosaurs. Um, Lexi's thing is that she's into uh, she's into computers, right? Yeah, which is funny because, like, here we go again in the book. <laughs> they actually switch the ages around, and Tim is the older sibling, and Lex is the younger sibling. Except Tim is the one that's presented as both the dinosaur nerd and a computer nerd and then uh lex is is both like a tom tomboy and also just like a very obnoxious like little girl who all she does is scream and freak out the entire movie i will say that the change that steven spielberg has made that i really appreciate is actually the fact that you know that that he balances out these traits among both the characters and kind of picks the what's most appropriate for each one and essentially turns Lex into the, you know, we're like now we really want to encourage a lot of our young girls to work in tech, you know, to try to give more diversity, gender diversity to the field. You know, she is an early computer hacker who understands Unix. <laughs> she's a hacksaw. <laughs> that will seem when she's like, I get it. I was like, okay, you do you kid. <laughs> Um. So yeah, actually, I mean, she. I want. I gotta say, of all the people in this film, the, I, the, you know, spicy hot take. I think the girl that played Lex Murphy, Ariana Richards, probably did the best job. And the reason why, and in part of it could be just, uh, it could be like talking about how good the script was, or maybe how good Steven Spielberg's direction was. But I feel like she was really able to encapsulate the weird range of emotions of meeting something that you can't explain or comprehend, but it scares the shit out of you, right? Like when, like when they get attacked by the T-Rex, she is visibly traumatized for a good like three scenes after that. And I think it was just like, she did a fantastic job of being able to portray kind of like that fear. And then she also has like her own arc where she, where she feels kind of like afraid until she finds that thing she's really good at and how that plays in the, the end of the film. You know, yeah. it's really interesting that you mentioned that now that I think about it, I think it's very common that Spielberg movies, and I, I have to appreciate it just thinking about it, but it's pretty common in Spielberg movies that girls who are in them, like you said, are are girls that are very like. I almost feel like they have like a level. They have like a level of control over the situations that they're in that some of their male counterparts don't even have. And I'll go back to like you know we talk if we talk about like E.T. Drew Barrymore and E.T. Like she starts off as like, you know, it's very goofy and like she's like scared and being chased by him in the closet. <laughs> but then, you know, just a few scenes later, she's actually the one that teaches E.T. how to talk. Mm -hmm. And if you go to uh, Poltergeist with Carol Ann, like Carol Ann is actually like the conduit through which all the like 
ghosts try to uh, communicate with everyone. So yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I actually have to appreciate a lot the way that Steven Spielberg writes uh, girl characters as sometimes even more, you know, even more kind of in charge than male characters. <laughs> Cause I can tell you, dude, like, obviously I never encountered a dinosaur. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> but when I was a kid, my pops used to take me hunting like between 13, 14, 15. And I remember there was like a, I remember there was this time we were, we were, we were tracking a deer and I don't know what it was to this day. I'm not sure. My pops think my, my pop says that it was a, a deer that smelled us, made a noise to scare us and then took off running. Uh, but I, sh- Oh my God. One of the, like, one, I duked myself so freaking hard <laughs> was we were in the middle of this forest and in the brush, I just hear this like guttural grunt come from behind us. And it sounded like something big and heavy took off running. And I just remember I, I was scared and I was like visibly traumatized, like, well, not traumatized, but like visibly freaked out. And I remember being like, like I told you, like 12 or 13. And I'm like, I didn't have, you know, like, it, like see, remembering that experience as a kid and then watching this movie, Jurassic Park, I'm like, wow, like they, I don't know whether it's the actresses or whether it's Steven Spielberg, but they know how to capture that weird, like that weird wonder and fear that children have or are are only capable of right and also i can say that lex probably handled it i mean she was fighting dinosaurs and shit she handled that way more than i did with my deer situation (laughs) she handled that way better than i would have but yeah like that was just something i wanted to bring you know i wanted to bring a little bit of attention to it uh, meanwhile, while all this is going on, we also, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Mr. Wayne Knight himself and bring in <laughs> Nedry. I forget what his like full name is. Dennis Nedry. Of course you would know. So, <laughs> so Dennis Nedry. Literally been catching up on the novel this week. So yes. <laughs> so Dennis Nedry, he's essentially, like you said, the IT guy that is controlling essentially the entire system (laughs) his goal was to make um was to make jurassic park automated so automated and such a fine-tuned machine that you can run it with literally the bare minimum skeleton crew and he's the guy that is in charge of the entire system and as we find out although john hammond always talks about sparing no expense he says it like seven times throughout this damn movie um, we find out apparently he did spare some expense when it came to his IT guy. Yeah, it's, you know, and I don't want to get into a conversation that people I work with will listen to and take the wrong way either. But a lot of companies, what they do is they spend a lot of money on IT, but a lot of the money that they spend on IT is infrastructure and they love to skim when it comes to the people who are actually controlling the infrastructure. <laughs> Y'all heard Angel. Unionize. Fight. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, you know, this is, this character in the, you know, both in the book and in, and in the movie is someone who is interested in getting, you know, what he can uh, to it's essentially like job hopping, right? He wants to hop to the next best opportunity, except to do it, he's going to steal the intellectual property of engine. <laughs> 
um, which you know is it's it's the one thing that makes him the villain in this that you <laughs> that you end up having to turn on him. But also, what I think what I appreciate about this is as someone who does work, you know, as part of a team that helps keep a company afloat, especially like, you know, in a time like this with COVID and stuff like that, like IT is very much like that. It's as good as everything looks on the outside. It's literally like playing whack-a-mole. Every time that you get rid of a problem, a new problem shows up. And that is why we have careers. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, his this character, uh, you know, played by Wayne Knight is, you know, he's more, he's played for laughs in this. Uh, he his idea is that he's going to steal the embryos from Jurassic Park and give them to uh, the character of Lewis Dodgson uh, so that he can go to the Biosyn company and the Biosyn company can end up ripping off what InGen is doing. And funny enough, the character of Lewis Dodgson, even though he only shows up for a second in this movie, is supposedly going to come back in Jurassic World Dominion which is going to be the last movie in the Jurassic World series. And he's, except he's going to be played by a different actor. <laughs> and I, I don't know how I stumbled upon this. He's going to be played by Campbell Scott, who played Peter Parker's dad in the Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> movies. But uh, the reason why this guy is replacing the original actor, whose name is Cameron Thor, Mm-hmm. He's the guy who uh, who who played Lewis Dodgson in, in Jurassic Park is because that guy is in jail because he's a convicted sex offender who was sentenced to six years in prison for sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't that know. was a dark chapter I didn't expect to learn about <laughs> Jurassic Park. That was, a, that was a darker chapter than anything that that was written by Michael Crichton. <laughs> Once again, the real monster is man. <laughs> yeah. Oh my so, God, uh, but the character will come back, and he's also actually a big part of the Lost World novel. So, but he doesn't come back in the film adaptation of that. But yeah, he's essentially the guy who works for the rival company uh, to InGen, and you know, one of the things that ends up going wrong per Malcolm's, you know warning to our characters is you know he's he's going to turn off all the fences in jurassic park so that he can get to the east dock and originally i'm sure he he felt like there was going to be no problem to him getting there but what else happens to happen the same time that he needs to get this out and he only has like a few hour window to do it uh you get a storm that hits Mm -hmm. isla nublar so it, this, it, that's the idea behind chaos theory, which is it's not, which is Jurassic Park was always destined to fail. And if mm-hmm. it wasn't destined to fail because of one thing, it was going to be something else as well. No matter how much control you try to impose on the universe, the control, or I mean, the universe will always find its way to, you know, <laughs> take control back. Right. And that, yeah, that's essentially the setup for all the craziness that happens pretty much coming up. <laughs> so our, you know, our team of protagonists, they go on a, a very lackluster tour where um, John Hammond looks almost dejected the entire time he was, he's been talking up how great Jurassic Park is and how fantastic the tour is and how that's going to be like a big cornerstone of the experience of being at the park. And when they get, and when they actually go, and this includes uh, Malcolm, uh, Malcolm, Ellie, Alan, Gennaro, and the kids, 
Um, nothing. They see no dinosaurs. The dinosaurs aren't active during the day. Um, and I think the closest they actually come to seeing one is when they encounter a sick triceratops in a clearing where, you know, the, where everyone gets out of the car and they, they, you know, much to Muldoon's like anger (laughs) and they all get to see this triceratops, uh, you know, Edley, Edley, Ellie being (laughs) the, um, being the paleobotanist, she's kind of the one that takes charge and tries to find out what's making this uh, triceratops sick. Mm-hmm. And to which we get the awesome line where Ian Malcolm walks in front of her, walks up uh. to the group and says, that's a big pile of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and the yeah. only reason I want to bring it up is because I never thought this would be relevant to uh, The Last of Us, which I just finished playing. <laughs> But there's a yeah, there's a scene in The Last of Us where a flashback scene where the main characters go to a uh they go to a uh, a museum, like a prehistoric museum, and there's a bunch of dinosaur models and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And the entire time uh Joel, the main character, he's just describing Jurassic Park. But you can tell they don't want to get in trouble for talking about Jurassic Park, so they just <laughs> speak in very vague platitudes. <laughs> nice but yeah so at this point um ellie stays back with one of the park medics to take care of the triceratops or one of the vets i don't know what dinosaurs get <laughs> meanwhile the rest of the group uh, rides back in the cars uh towards the back to the visitor center yes and they end up like the power ends up going out like right when they're in front of the t-rex like enclosure <laughs> which you know is just the worst thing that could happen the uh, power goes out the electrified fences go down <laughs> all the all the doors get unlocked yeah which you know this is where we get the scene of the movie and the scene of maybe even the novel as well which is the you know when the t-rex like you know, Dodson has left. He's turned off all the fences in the park because he's trying to hit the eastern dock uh, to give the embryos to Biosyn and then come back fast enough so that he can look like the avenging hero who fixed the entire computer system. Mm-hmm. But Chaos Theory makes it so that Nedry actually ends up crashing his Jeep, <laughs> went the wrong way, and is ultimately killed by a Dilophosaurus who, you know, is actually in terms of just physically how they look, they are completely different in the novel. Dilophosaurus are nine feet tall. And uh, what they, they, they don't have that, you know, that, that crazy, like kind of like peacock sail that. Yeah. Comes the up. weird frills. At least not, at least not in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and the death of Dennis Nedry is probably one of the more violent, like deaths, like in any book that I've ever read in my life, right? <laughs> with yeah. the detail that it's described in. Like, he's shot with, uh, with by the Dilophosaur. Like, the Dilophosaur spits on him, and it's like some sort of foam substance. It makes him go blind because he's shot in the face and instantaneously loses sight. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ends up landing on the foot of the Dilophosaurus. It slashes his stomach with its claws oh. to the point where where uh, Dennis Nedry is holding his intestines. Um, Holy shit! And it's like, yeah, it is It is a super grim and, you know, dark, like, death that this character gets, which, you know, I'm pretty sure that given that people knew Wayne Knight as, like, 
Newman Newton? from Seinfeld. <laughs> like, I don't know if people going into this movie wanted to watch like Newman get disemboweled by a dinosaur. <laughs> but uh, in this movie, it's kind of played more for goofy laughs. He gets shot in the face with tar. He gets he, he you know kind of like tries to play fetch with the dinosaur because he doesn't really know Go, anything you about dinosaur. the dinosaurs. Uh, and you know, once he's killed, that. Embryo, you know, the embryos are never going to be taken by Osin. So the park remains like, you know, with all the electricity shut off. And that means that this is time for, you know, T Rex to break it's out of its paddock. Time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Literally, best scene in the movie. Fight me now, everybody. <laughs> no, it really is. It's the best scene in the movie. Uh, in the book, it's done in terms of like, the only time that you can actually see the T-Rex is when lightning is hitting during this thunderstorm. And uh, whenever the lightning has gone away, it's completely dark. And because it is so dark for all of our characters, they have, they, they have no idea where the T-Rex is in many cases. Like, I think Tim is the only one who's able to see him because of the night vision goggles. That's right. <laughs> which, so. never, which never come back in the movie. Like, they never bring it up. Like, because I, I remember, like, noticing that is that Tim actually pulls out the night vision goggles, but they're like, but Gennaro's just being a dick and is like, is, are those heavy? Then they're expensive. Put it away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which, you know, the the, the more, like, you know, I'm going to run away and I'm actually more of a piece of shit Gennaro character is actually based more on a character named Ed Regis in the novel. Mm-hmm. And Ed he's Regis, the one that gets fucked. Yeah, he's the guy who ends up taking the, the raptor attack guy to the uh, Costa Rican clinic in the book. And, you know, part of the reason why he ends up ditching the kids and leaving is because he's the only one of our characters who's actually seen what a dinosaur attack can do to a human being. So he, like, pisses himself and leaves the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in that order. <laughs> yeah, and he's the one who ends up getting killed. And Gennaro actually <laughs> stayed in the visitor center with our other characters. So uh, in this book, they end up mixing the characters of Gennaro and Ed Regis. So we get a shittier Gennaro who everyone hates who ditches the kids just for no other reason than he's a piece of shit lawyer and uh, he gets eaten in the stall. <laughs> what a shitty way to die, man. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> uh, but in the, the, everything about this scene is awesome. The fact that it's done in the rain, uh, the fact that it has such a good mix of an actual giant Stan Winston animatronic T-Rex mm-hmm. and the CGI just makes it perfect it's like you know they only use the cgi for the stuff that they couldn't get like the full body shots of the t-rex so it has such a reality to it that you were just absolutely transported into this movie um they talked about how difficult it was to shoot this because it it, obviously it is a robot right that that they are using and Mm -hmm. because it kept getting like peppered with water like it would actually end up like twitching at some point that's so terrifying to think about (laughs) and so it's like it's super dangerous because these are just these giant heavy robots so i guess not too dissimilar from tammy and the (laughs) team Freaking dude, the the fantastic like shots, how they use the water to like tell you wh- when the T Rex gets close, the the use of silence, like the, how it causes anxiety as you know something's <laughs> coming. Just the entire scene is fantastic. 
Um, and the, and also just the, the effect that you get from the, from like the water ripples and stuff like that. Apparently that was something that Steven Spielberg just like pictured at, at one point and said he needed to have in this movie. And funny enough, the only thing that could do that could make the effect that Steven Spielberg wanted for this was, I guess, a certain guitar string, like from an electric guitar. So the guy would have to like be under where the cup was and he would have mm. to p- play this string and the string is what would cause those like circular ripples. That's so crazy. Oh man. So this scene uh, during the, during the T-Rex attack ends up going after Gennaro runs out, uh, you know, runs off. Uh, the T-Rex ends up attacking the car with the kids in it and just tearing it apart and uh threatening the children uh alan grant gets out with a flare that he got from the i guess emergency kid in the back and uses it to try to draw the t-rex's attention and his idea was to get the t-rex to focus on the flare itself and throw it into the you know throw it in the woods so that it would chase the flare giving everyone a chance to escape uh, Ian Malcolm gets out of the car, grabs his own flare, and ends up doing the trying to do the same thing. Ends up getting the T Rex's attention, um, but the T Rex becomes focused on him and not the light, attacking him, uh, throwing him into the uh, bathroom stall that Gennaro was hiding in, uh, or into the bathroom uh, that Gennaro was hiding in. Uh, he en- the T Rex destroys the bathroom and ends up killing Gennaro. Uh, during this time, uh, Grant is able to get the kids out of the, or tries to get the kids out of the Jeep. Um, the T-Rex ends up throwing like the Jeep over, uh, over the, into the paddock where it gets like caught in these trees and it's just an entire like nail biting harrowing scene where it's like Grant who hates kids obviously like that's the the whole thing is that he develops his relationship with lex and tim pretty much being the only adult and trying to protect them uh but it's just this harrowing thing where it's like this guy it just it just keeps going from bad to worse for him (laughs) in the entire time he has to take care of these kids who he just met um but it but and and you know like the I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, it's actually really sweet, the relationship he starts developing with Tim and Lex, um, where, you know, he, 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 like, remind, he remembers what it's like to be a kid, so he understands, like, Lex's fear and everything she's going through, and he also understands where Tim is coming from and how he views the world. Um, you know, we get that we get that really cool scene where they're, uh, where they go up into the trees after um after escaping from the t-rex and they stay the night in like this tree and in the morning they get woken up by a brachiosaur that's eating like some trees next or eating from plants next to them and you know this is what i'm talking about as soon as they wake up lex freaks out and she starts getting scared and grant immediately calms her down and like explains uh what a brachiosaur is and how it's essentially a giant cow (laughs) a big long-necked cow and you know we get that 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 shot of all the brachiosaurs in the forest with their with their um, you know all eating and they get to feed the kids or the kids get to feed the the dinosaur. 
Um, is, yeah, it's just really, it's a really touching scene and it really kind of cements home that this guy, yeah, like, yeah, it's, it's such a cheesy, like, 90s, 80s, 90s, like, plot, but god damn it, it pays off. Like, I really like it. <laughs> like, for me in this film, I really do like the, the relationship that Grant develops with the kids. Uh, once we get past this scene, we actually, you know, uh, we get like the control room scenes, I guess, which is what I like to call them, uh, mm-hmm. where they're trying to figure out what they're going to do to fix all the things that Nedry did <laughs> and how to get, you know, Grant and Malcolm and the kids and Gennaro and everybody back. So Muldoon and, and Ellie like end up getting in one of the Jeeps and they go to the location that the that the other cars stopped in um, to bring them back. And uh, by the time they get there, <laughs> by the time they get there, the uh, vans are empty, right? Like, the, sorry, just one second here. So the control center scenes that you were talking about, essentially what takes place now is that while Alan Grant and the kids are off kind of fucking about in the jungle trying to stay alive, uh, Ellie, John, and Samuel Jackson, good old Mr. Ray Arnold, uh, are trying to fix Nedry's mistakes. So without, with Nedry dead, he can no longer fix the computer system uh, after destroying essentially all the security protocols uh, for Jurassic Park. So what they have to do is they have to restart the... Oh, and Muldoon. I forgot about Muldoon. But uh, what they're going to do is they're going to have to restart the the power they're gonna have to start the power manually so they can get access to um essentially the the computer system and find a way around nedry's uh lockout they're doing what any it department would do in this situation and that's turning it off and turning it back on again have you tried turning it off then on again (laughs) (laughs) and thanks to this movie and sam jackson's character hold on to your butts is like actually part of my regular vocabulary (laughs) dude the fact that so many scientists and like smart people just wear lab coats in this movie and smoke cigarettes like it's the thing to do that made me want to go into science i didn't know scientists were so badass (laughs) so pretty much at this point um arnold goes to he goes to these uh kind of like I don't know what what it's supposed to be like a substation for the for the like the power plant, uh, and he tries to reset the power, uh, and I think he tells the group to wait for his instructions if he doesn't um, that he shouldn't take too long that maybe like ten minutes or something like that. Well, as the time goes by, Ellie becomes a lot more uh, impatient, uh, and they also have that scene i don't know if you if you remember it angel they have that really interesting scene where like john hammond is like all depressed and mad because his stupid dinosaur park is failing horribly oh yeah so where he's, he's eating the ice cream yeah where he's eating ice cream. <laughs> and we get that one-on-one like talk with him and ellie where um where he explains how he got the start his start with uh the illusions right like or not the illusion sorry but like creating animatronic toys um, and like charging people to see the flea circus. 
And he said that it was the illusion that, you know, the fleas were, were playing on these mechanized toys, but there really wasn't any fleas. But what he liked selling was the dream. He liked selling the dreams to families and kids. And he wanted the whole purpose of Jurassic Park was to give people that dream again. And then Ellie just fucking rips into him and lets him have it and tells him about how the illusion wasn't the dinosaurs the uh, like he thought. And that was kind of the point of why he brought Ellie and or he had Ellie and um, Alan come onto the island. I remember reading an article a long time ago where they were saying that the whole purpose of bringing uh, Ellie and Ellie and uh, Alan wasn't to to prove how real it, the uh, Jurassic Park was, but it was to see if they can fool experts into believing it was real. Yeah, it's the illusion. It's it's can and and I think that's why the Canyon Flea Circus like makes <laughs> it like makes so much sense in this. <laughs> it sounded right? so stupid when you said it out loud. <laughs> Canyon Flea Circus. <laughs> I, I hate to make it sound so reductive, but. <laughs> Sometimes I mean, you just need to speed it up a little bit. What are you gonna do? I'm pretty sure that the the zoo in Kenya wasn't a flea circus. <laughs> Man, like, that Kenyan flea circus zoo was awesome. <laughs> I can't wait to take all my kids. I can't wait for the dinosaur Kenyan flea circus zoo <laughs> in space. <laughs> but yeah, Elliot ends up letting him have it. Just talking about how the illusion wasn't the dinosaurs. The illusion was the control he thought he had on the situation. Mm-hmm. It, the control wasn't, it wasn't the fact that he can create dinosaurs. He thought he had in control because he created them. But the reality is that these are creatures. These are mon- they're not monsters, but they're living things. And they're, they're reacting. They're learning their place in the world. And there's no way you can think Jurassic Park is still going to be a success when people are dying and while Mm -hmm. you're living in fear because you've essentially lost control of something you never really had control over to begin with. Yeah. And in the book, like, he has no remorse about this. Like, his grandkids are gone and uh, everything is falling apart around him. And no matter what, like, you know, this isn't over. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to make Jurassic Park 2 and it will be better. <laughs> I'm going to make Jurassic World. <laughs> Bow right to the moon. <laughs> well, I don't know why he turned into the dude from <laughs> I, the honeymooner. <laughs> I love this like caricature of John Hammond that we've created. <laughs> Where in my head, even though he's Scottish, he talks like he's a, you know, Hollywood man from the 1930s. <laughs> he's essentially like Donald Trump created a dinosaur park. <laughs> oh my god. Is this as good a time as any to explain what I was talking about in the text message? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is the right time because I need, I need to hear this thesis of yours. So, because all right, you you made fun of me when I talked about you know my my crowning achievement as a college student was uh, you know my paper on horror movies in the Vietnam War. <laughs> I I am waiting for you to explain what you sent me in a text message this morning. <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, while I was watching Jurassic Park this morning, and it was specifically during the scene where they were at lunch. 
And it was when John Hammond says, I brought Ellie and Alan onto the island so that they can be on my side. And it turns out they're naysayers like everyone else or something to that effect, right? (laughs) And I was like, this dickhead brought people in thinking just for the purpose of proving him right (laughs) and is now super butthurt that the the experts are giving him expert opinions on his stupid dinosaur park. (laughs) Dr. Alan... Uh, Anthony Fauci Grant. (laughs) (laughs) It's your fault. The spread of these dinosaurs everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) This is totally going to date this episode. (laughs) So anyway, I was thinking about that and I I text Angel, wow, this is like, (laughs) this film is a microcosm of the U.S. response to the coronavirus pandemic. And he was like, what? But when you think about it, the guy in charge, um, you know, dinosaur grandpa Santa Claus, <laughs> he's essentially a more benevolent version of our glorious supreme leader, you know, DJT, good old Donald J. Trump. And the problem is that this guy, he brings in all these experts onto the island. And even though he brings them under the guise of seeking guidance and getting like, an understanding of the situation from these guys, the moment they, dis- they they ignore or the moment they deviate from whatever preconceived notion he had, he's right away. He's, he he kind of starts discrediting them or forgetting about them, right? Like he doesn't like all of a sudden their opinions don't matter to him. Very much kind of like what's going on with how much we we don't value scientific opinion or I'm sorry, scientific fact in our goddamn country right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, it's like it's. I feel like one of the things that 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 this kind of points out in the book, I guess, as well, more in the book, but it's just like the idea that capitalism thinks that it could buy its way into anything that it wants. Ooh, and, it's the, the invisible hand of the free market. <laughs> and <laughs> and to me, like capitalism's greatest, you know, foil in this book is ethics and people with ethics (laughs) like people who cannot be easily bought and even the people who basically make themselves for sale like the character of dr henry Wu, essentially eventually comes to the understanding that he you know now that the dinosaur park exists his opinion matters less to John Hammond. <laughs> Once it's a success and you believe you're a success, you don't need the help of the so-called experts. It's like when the lead singer in a band like decides to go off on his own and leaves the rest of the band behind. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the and ultimately, I don't want to make it a whole big preachy thing, but then it goes into the whole understanding of how at least in our country's response as we see other countries on the on the international community like kind of get a hold on their numbers and be able to test so easily and they're able to um they've they've gotten a pretty good handle on the pandemic at this point but we've been struggling so hard in this country right a big part of it is that we think we are still in control of it and we think that it's something that we can put in a box and we think that it's something that won't that has to do what we say, similar to dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but essentially, our approach has been that we think we can control it, when in reality, 
you know, forces and nature aren't something we can control. And it's something that we have to learn to adapt and kind of live with. So in other words, we are going to be living with dinosaurs for the next two years, everybody. <laughs> Just stay at home and the dinosaurs won't get you. <laughs> While our, uh, you know, Visitor Center's Breakfast Club is working on trying to get the Jurassic Park system back up and running. Is, we Muldoon, go back... uh, is Muldoon Emilio Estevez? <laughs> and we go back to the, uh, you know, Alan Grant and the kids who have stumbled upon the raptor eggs who, you know, which proves exactly what they thought that, you know, raptors are now breeding and, and all the animals are breeding in the park on their own. Um, then they end up in this giant field, like the same field that you, that I guess they were driving through in the beginning of the movie when you saw the Brachiosaur, mm-hmm. except this time you see this giant, like, you know, Herd. stampede of Gallimimus <laughs> and they are like <laughs> attacked by the T-Rex. And to me, I do kind of, a, I do really appreciate the fact that in this movie, when they introduce the T-Rex, the T-Rex is going to continue being like, the constant presence that pops up around our main character is kind of like mm-hmm. both letting you know that, you know, he is the king of this jungle. And also just that, you know, like he, there is, he is just the greatest predator on earth. <laughs> you know what it reminds me of? How it reminds me how King of Monsters treated Godzilla. Like he's not a hero, but he's not really a villain. He's just a force of nature that's there to fuck shit up. And this is a Steven Spielberg thing, by the way. The idea of, uh, of you know, making the T-Rex, like, because the, in the novel, like, the T-Rex is not involved in the ending of Jurassic Park, you know, mm-hmm. in this way at all. And even the original ending of this movie didn't have a T-Rex in it. And it just ended up being Steven Spielberg, like during production, changed his mind about the ending of the movie. And that's why the T-Rex at the end is completely CGI, because by that point, they weren't using any of the animatronics anymore. Mm-hmm. But he figured that he wanted to leave the viewer with the lasting impression that this that he was the dinosaur who ruled the Earth <laughs> in his time. And um, yeah. so... You know, it's it's essentially like them. They're they're starting to respect kind of like the nature of it, right? Like, you know, like those those memes that have been around and talked about when humans are gone, nature starts healing. <laughs> That's essentially mm-hmm. what's happening in Jurassic Park as the fences <laughs> we have are broken the down. <laughs> yeah, the, the the fences have broken down. All the people have left on boats. Few people are left alive on the island, and nature is beginning to heal. <laughs> <laughs> because it's like they're all traveling in herds now. Uh, the T-Rex is now hunting other animals as opposed to being fed like, you know, like sheep <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Oh, man. So I guess going back to our, I like that you call them the breakfast club. So <laughs> our breakfast club after uh, they separate, uh, Sattler and Muldoon head to the shed to try to see what's up with uh, Mr. Arnold or Ray Arnold. <laughs> Uh, what ends up happening is they split up because Muldoon notices they're being stalked by the Velociraptors. So he like shotguns up and is like, don't worry, I'll take care of them. And then like, he thinks he's stalking one of the Raptors and it turns out it was a setup because as we learned earlier in the film, Raptors are pack animals that hunt together. 
and he ends and this is where we get the iconic clever girl scene <laughs> where uh where Muldoon ends up getting uh flanked by one of the raptors and uh, ripped apart this honestly that raptor was probably the crappiest looking one in the entire film the raptor that's attacking uh Muldoon but I mean, aside from that, that's like the only one foible I can really think of as far as the animatronics or as far as the effects for the dinosaurs go. I um, do really appreciate what this movie does at this point, though, is that there's a time, there's like, you know, this middle part of the movie where like you hadn't seen the raptors at all, like in the entire first two acts of the film. Mm. And it, they really make you feel like T-Rex is the main antagonist of this movie. But then you start seeing that the T-Rex is just an animal. And then it's like the plot twist in all of this is that the main villains of this movie actually are the Velociraptors. <laughs> yeah, because they can think and they can strategize. <laughs> it's like they were set up in the first act by, by Dr. Grant. And then by this point, you are now seeing exactly how they attack, you know, in a, in a group uh, just how vicious they can be and also just how intelligent they can be in this movie. So Ellie starts, uh, she makes her way to the shed. She works her way down to the, I guess, main switch because apparently all fucking theme parks just have a big on and off switch. <laughs> but she uh, ends up getting the generator started and starts activating power uh, to different parts of the park. The mm -hmm. idea is that they can finally get their phones back online. They can get off the island. They can uh, secure the island using the uh, fences and electrifying and the locks, right? And electrifying the fences and everything. At the same time, uh, Alan Grant and the kids are making their way back to the visitor center, uh, kind of like hoofing it through all these like through all these like open fields and all the paddocks where the animals are or where the dinosaurs are. Mm -hmm. And they try to and. They end up finding a, a broken or one of the electrified fences with no power in it. So they decide to climb over the fence and unknown to our, to this group, Ellie starting the power up on the fences again. So we, all of a sudden we know something that the rest of the heroes don't know. And it's a huge source of like, Oh my God, what the fuck is going to happen? <laughs> It's also really important to note that they're supposedly these fences are electrified with 10,000 volts. I don't know if that's a lot. Is that a lot? I don't know. It's, it's such a like nothing like, you know, like you're not going to think about it. It just happens. <laughs> well, no, cause I was thinking I was, because you know, they, what ends up happening is when Ellie turns on the power, uh, will no Tim, sorry. Tim is still climbing on the fence. So he gets electrocuted and, uh, and Grant ends up catching him. Mm -hmm. And I was like, with how small that kid is, he should be dead, I think. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And they talk about how eventually he's going to end up like needing a hospital or whatever. And it's just like, whatever. At this point, the movie is the movie. And I'm not going to question any of the ridiculousness in the, in the final act. I like, yeah, that's that the problem you have with this movie, <laughs> not the dinosaurs. <laughs> no, and then, like, you know, it really is more of a chase movie at this point, and the, you know, the ending of the movie gets them, it, it gets Grant and the kids to the, like, main visitor center. Uh, Ellie and Grant actually end up, like, you know, end up back together again, and, uh, you know, 
Ellie, Grant, and the kids are all trying to escape the Raptors <laughs> that have kind of ganged up on them. And before they all officially reunite together, you get the kitchen scene, which, you know, to me is the, if you had to pick a scene that was a horror scene in this book, the most horror scene is this. And I'll say this, like, one of the things I like about the book, and I wish the movie had more of this, is <laughs> Alan Grant and the kids go on more adventures in the book. Like, it takes them forever to get to this visitor center. Where mm-hmm. in the movie, you just see the stampede in Gallimimus, but in the book, you actually uh, have them, you know, where they detour inside of this giant birdcage which is the scene that they lifted from in Jurassic Park 3 where they're all there with the pterodons. The good parts of Jurassic Park (laughs) 3 were supposed to be in Jurassic Park 1. Well, and the only part of the Jurassic Park movies that has not been adapted on film yet, which is actually one of my favorite scenes in the book or my favorite portions of the book, is when they're... uh, when Alan and the kids get onto a, a inflatable raft and they're going down the river and they end up like stumbling upon a sleep, the sleeping T-Rex that was attacking them earlier on the main road. And they end up, you know, somehow waking up the T-Rex as they're going by. And it looks like they're about to escape him. And the T-Rex like, isn't really going to be able to follow them because they're on the water. But then like the, horror scene and all of that is is apparently what they weren't aware of is that the tyrannosaurus rex can actually swim and it swims behind them oh fuck off are you serious (laughs) yeah and and i know that like in terms of the fact that you know the 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 raft portion of it like jurassic park the ride at the universal studios like theme parks uh those rides like took 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 from that specific scene itself right Mm mm-hmm so, I mean, Jurassic Park 3 kind of has that. It kind of has it a little bit with the Spinosaurus in the yeah. book and, and the boat. But I do just want one day, and maybe Dominion is the one that does this, but I really do want like a T-Rex is chasing you on an inflatable raft scene. <laughs> and that's like the, the one like seed that I wish like they would have put back in this. But, you know, here we are anyway. They're in the visitor center. It's just them and the Velociraptors. Uh, after the kitchen scene, the kids show that, you know, they lock one of the velociraptors inside the kitchen. Uh, they're being chased by the remaining two <laughs> throughout the center. Uh, this is where, you know, once they meet back up with Alan and Ellie, uh, we find out that Lex, you know, Lex understands Unix and she's able to start putting the phones back online and able to set up the automatic door locks that she <laughs> had set up around the park. Sure, why not? You go, girl. Yeah, I mean, like I said, the, this book was the the in the novel. Like you know, I, I just <laughs> I get the feeling that like Michael Crichton, you know, and he's not with us anymore. But he was. I feel like a lot of the characters are low key like sexist in terms of how they're portrayed in the novel. <laughs> so the fact that you know the female characters get a lot more they feel a lot more like equals or better to their male counterparts. I, again, Steven Spielberg hats off to you on that. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Michael Crichton kind of grew up on a lot of pulp novels and pulp comics. Mm-hmm. So he was really big into like adventure stories. And of course those adventure stories were always about making the big, uh, you know, the big dumb hero guy, right? Like this, this adventurer type kind of like uh, the Indiana Jones archetype. 
or like what they end up doing in Jurassic World with the character of Owen Grady. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, where he's like this big manly man who trains raptors and was a Navy SEAL or some shit. Yeah, no kidding. But yeah, it's... like that. That those, those are the kind of characters he grew up with. Um, but yeah, he was just one of those weird dudes that really liked these pulpy characters, but really liked science and just kind of put them together in his uh, in his works. And once um, we get the phones back up and running, that's when uh, Alan Grant tells, uh, you know, he, he tells John Hammond yeah. to, you know, send in the helicopter so that they can get off the island. And uh, that's, you know, essentially what he's doing while they're trying to make their final escape. They get in through the vents. They're being chased uh, into, like, the main lobby where you saw the giant T-Rex skeleton and the When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth banner. And that's when, you know, when all hope looks lost and they're all about to get ganged up on by the raptors are T-Rex who literally, there's no broken, like, you know, like he didn't break into this visitor center. There's no noise. (laughs) Nobody sees him, but the fucking T-Rex just breaks in and murders the shit out of these rats. No structural damage to this building. Like, he just snuck in, and that's, like, the one part of this scene that, like, makes absolutely no sense. But at this point, you have just gone on the ride with this movie to such an extent that it like, you know, it really is just the perfect cherry on top to the Sunday. That is this movie. Mm-hmm. It's so much so that they had to bring kind of like a, they had to bring an homage back to this in uh not fallen kingdom in Jurassic world. Yeah. I do feel like the, the T-Rex in Jurassic World is, is portrayed as, as more of a hero. And that's specifically because of, you know, what Spielberg like does. Like the arc of the T-Rex in this movie is he starts off as a villain and he ends up as a hero. <laughs> mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I really like the whole, it's just a big monster. <laughs> it's just a big animal. It's not evil. It, at, at best, it's indifferent to you. At worst, it wants to eat you. Yeah. And in this book, you know, I mean, and in the movie, you know, they, they get onto the helicopter and leave the island. The kids are now, like, you know, best friends with Alan Grant. And it looks like he and Ellie are going to have kids and be happily ever after. No, wait and, till Jurassic Park 3, buddy. Yeah. You know, and, but you know what's funny? Like, when we talked about Jurassic Park 3, I feel like, what I do appreciate is that because of the character arc that he goes through in this movie, it's so refreshing to just have him like get along so well with the kid character in Jurassic Park (laughs) three. Yeah. Like it's one of those things where it's like, you don't, we don't know what happened to Ellie and Alan during that time between those, what, what's it supposed to be like 10 years between Mm -hmm. uh, Jurassic Park one and three. So we don't know exactly what happened between them, but it's like they still—they're still friendly. They still get along. Clearly, Ellie wanted a light, wanted to make a life with somebody else because Alan, we assume, is still like caught up in his work. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's no animosity there, and Al- and Alan still it find- is suddenly it's easier for him to get along with kids, and he has no problem. Like you said, he has no problems establishing a relationship with. I forgot. Uh, I forget what the other kid's name is. <laughs> Fuck that kid. <laughs> but it, so the difference in this is that this movie's ending is a lot more optimistic and sweet, and you get the John Williams score that just swells as they fly off into the sunlight. Whereas in the book, it's a lot more of a dark ending. 
uh, Ian Malcolm actually dies because of his leg injury. Uh, he becomes increasingly more in- incoherent because of all the morphine that he's getting. <laughs> <laughs> he becomes a morphine addict yeah, like over he, the course of like a day. <laughs> yeah, like so he just becomes like even crazier. He just starts raving and eventually just dies from his injuries before he can get to a hospital. Uh, John Hammond ends up, uh, you know, out in the middle of nowhere uh gets scared by the roar of the t-rex in the distance ends up falling breaking his leg and is ultimately eaten by the compies (laughs) in the in the book and then once our characters are actually able to escape isla nublar in jurassic park uh the costa rican government actually napalms the island (laughs) just effectively destroying everything that existed there (laughs) (laughs) I love that ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because up until it's funny because like up until Jurassic World came out, we never go back to Isla Nublar, right? Like the original like tr- uh, trilogy had both the sequels at Isla like Sorna, so you could be left to kind of infer that that island was destroyed in the books. Mm-hmm. But then obviously now in this new timeline, like we know that it wasn't. But yes, in the book it is absolutely destroyed. Um, and then it, the book really ends with. Uh, you know, Alan, Ellie, and the kids are, you know, uh, at this hotel in Costa Rica where they're basically being questioned by the government as to what's been happening there. And uh, there's like a government agent that goes to talk to Alan Grant while he's poolside and basically tells him that, you know, other dinosaurs have made it to different parts of South America. Uh, They're eating a lot of the you know, soy rich crops that exist in a lot of these areas because, you know, they were, the idea is that they like, you know, that they, they are, they they eat lysine and that's what they need to like sustain themselves and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So that's why they, they, you know, the eating habits of raptors have completely changed. And apparently they're now living like in the mountains in Central America and South America (laughs) And uh, when Alan Grant asks about, you know, when it's going to be possible for them to leave this place, the guy basically tells him, you're not going to be able to live, leave here for a very long time. <laughs> you still have another job to do, Alan. <laughs> he gives him a gun and he's like, gives him a pair of sunglasses. He goes, you're a dinosaur hunter now. Yeah, which, you know, when I was younger, I thought I always read the ending of the movie being that, yeah, Grant is going to be the one that's go that's going with, I guess, a team of these government agents in these other parts of South America. But as a more cynical adult, I'm like, yeah, he's probably going to be in some sort of detention center for months until they start trying to figure out exactly what happened here. Or you can be the conspiracy theorist like myself, and you find out that these dinosaurs are learning to talk, <laughs> and now the CIA wants to weaponize them. <laughs> One day we might actually get that sequel, I'm sure. And that's, oh my god, like, again, we talk about how great and fantastic the book and the first movie are, but Jesus Christ, are there some bad shit, crazy ideas for spinoffs and sequels, guys? Yeah, and I think we even talked about him in our Jurassic Park 3 episode, so I won't go over them again. Yeah. But one thing I did want to mention uh, as we were on this show, because we didn't mention, I don't think we did mention this in uh, our Jurassic Park 3 review, but what do you think is going to happen in Jurassic World? 
the the third Jurassic World movie that has yet to come out. It was they they paused filming of it because of the pandemic, but apparently mm-hmm. in mid July they resumed filming again. And uh, I guess it, what the director was talking about is that the hiatus was good because it, it allowed them to uh, at, at least like put greater effects on what they were already like filming. But uh, okay. we already know that this third movie in the series is going to be dinosaurs on the mainland, which is what this you know book ends in and what this series has always been building towards. So this really does feel like the Avengers Endgame <laughs> of dinosaur movies. <laughs> Indominus gathers all the Infinity Stones. <laughs> oh, man. It'll be interesting, man, because uh, like I never saw Fallen Kingdom. I, I'm actually considering renting it tonight just so I can watch it. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it'll be really interesting what they end up doing with it because it's like they kind of played around with that idea in Lost World of a dinosaur on the mainland. Um, but no, like it'll be really cool to see how they do it, specifically with the with these characters, right? Using like Owen, uh, I forget what his last name is, but <laughs> using Chris Pratt and kind of like and kind of using this new timeline. So I don't know what to expect. And the fact that all the characters from this movie are going to come back now. Like Sam Neill and, uh, and Laura Dern are also coming back. And, Shut uh, up. Are you serious? Yeah, they're, they're, they're all coming back. Jeff Goldblum is coming back. Jeff Goldblum was in Fallen Kingdom, but it's little more than a cameo mm-hmm. appearance that he does. He's essentially just in one scene uh, that's like some sort of like he's giving his testimony in front of Congress or something like that. <laughs> Let these dinosaurs live. <laughs> why is, why does he and Malcolm sound like Bernie Sanders? <laughs> <laughs> I told you. Damn it. Now I lost it because now I'm trying to sound like Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I'm not saying all, you know, elderly Jewish people sound alike. <laughs> no, I thought I thought there was a good distinction between your uh, Bernie Sanders and your Anthony Fauci. <laughs> Angel, did you like Jurassic Park? Obviously, I like Jurassic Park. Um, you know, I love the book and I love the movie. And I know that this review is very different in terms of the fact that we put so much like of the book into the movie. I promise I will not do this with other reviews of movies that are based on books because... I don't know any of them as well as I know the material for this and the actual film, but I'm very glad that we got to review this. Uh, if for nothing else, you know, the fact that we, there's no summer blockbusters this year. <laughs> so we get to go into the past and visit one of the, you know, great summer blockbusters of our childhood. Um, there's going to be a new movie in this series coming out. So this isn't going to be the last time that we ever talk about this and uh, just, you know, I, I like dinosaurs. I love Godzilla movies. I, mm-hmm. And this movie is what, you know, really sparked my love for all of that because I saw it at such a young age. So, And you know what's really cool is that you watch this as a kid and you're like, oh, cool, a dinosaur movie. This is rad. And you watch it as an adult and you're like, oh, wow. This is a movie that addresses like ethics and science and health or, or you know, and, like, science and kind of i guess healthcare and kind of like uh, a company's um you know and it, it, it delves into all these things with corporate espionage and kind of like 
uh, company ethics and stuff like that. But it's still about dinosaurs, so it's still cool. <laughs> but you, you find out that not only is this a cool dinosaur movie, but it's like a retelling of, of Frankenstein, too. Um, it's just an awesome story that has so many different elements, whether it's adventure elements, whether it's the sci-fi elements, whether it's the horror elements, like... And it's all presented in a way that it's so, like, family-friendly and wholesome, you know? Like, I think that's one thing I've always thought of Steven Spielberg movies. Like, for some reason, I always, like, I always think, man, these movies are wholesome, you know? And then I watched Saving Private Ryan, and I was like, oh, whoa. Calm it down there, Tiger. <laughs> but, you know, like, it's one of those it's one of those movies that you can uh, always come back to. It's aged super well. It has fantastic uh visuals like you have great performances great actors um a pretty tight script like a very tight storyline like a, there's there's very few things we can actually poke holes into um ultimately it's a great movie and i had a lot of fun talking about it today yep so i'd like to thank everybody for joining us for this episode of the show um we are very, you know, glad that we're still, you know, producing content. <laughs> and the fact that I feel like I have to admit that this like summer of shows really has been awesome for me. I've been having so much fun watching all the movies that we've been watching this summer. And <laughs> next week, it <laughs> is going to fucking rock because we are finally, you know, going. I feel like this is going to be the the... This week's episode and next week's episode are the weeks where we're like continuing, uh, you know, movie franchises that we did in the early days of the show. <laughs> because one of, another early episode that we did of this program was where we did Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift. And Ooh. next week we are finally going to do Too Fast, Too Furious. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> and I am very much looking forward to it. Uh, I was telling Javi, I'm so excited because next week is my birthday, and on top of it being my birthday, we're gonna go ahead and review Too Fast, Too Furious. <laughs> um, you know why I'm looking forward to this because it's not only talking about like the best movie in the franchise, but it's also a chance to dissect that super awesome time that was the early odds. <laughs> well, and also I feel like it's gonna be one of the times that like our audience is not going to agree with us at all because this is easily one of the most despised movies in the franchise. <laughs> and to us, it's really one of our favorites. <laughs> and anyone that thinks, uh, Oh yeah. So spoilers, <laughs> just in case you guys wonder how we feel about that movie, <laughs> but definitely check it out next week's episode. I'm looking really forward to it. Any excuse to watch too fast, too furious. We'll talk to you guys next week. Later y'all.